The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Father, please, uh, please bless this time. Uh, now as we get into your word, may it be uh, life-changing for all of us. Not, not one of us is in a place to not need this. And so help us hear, help us believe, help us surrender, help us walk in obedience to you. Help us to see the full benefit of living in the way that you've prescribed for us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, are you ready? Ready for what God has for us this year? This is launch weekend, and we're excited about what's ahead of us. I, I wrote down the word adventure, because I think it's going to be an adventure, and the thing about setting out on an adventure is you never not quite know what's going to happen. You just don't know. We've kind of set uh, the, the path out there in front of us. We don't know where the Lord is going to take us, but we're excited about it. And what we're seeking to do here at Harvest in Barrie and our movement as a whole, which is called the Harvest Bible Fellowship. And when you start to think about it, Barrie, Ontario, our thing, and even the Harvest Bible Fellowship, kind of, they're kind of small things. They're kind of small things. When you set them up against the backdrop of everything that, is God, that God is doing around the entire world, they just seem like small things. But here's, here's the thing. It doesn't seem like a small thing to us doesn't seem like a small thing to us. It seems rather large, a, a big vision with lots of challenges that are ahead of us. And often, I, I got to thinking about this, often the only thing that's stopping us from doing more, and what I mean by more is accepting the challenge and going on the adventure. What I mean by that is more people coming to faith in Christ and, and more churches planted for them to go to and, and more lives being impacted in a compassionate way for Jesus Christ. The only thing hindering us from accomplishing more is us. Our lack of faith, our lack of courage, our lack of focus on the thing that Jesus wants us to do and getting distracted by a whole pile of other things. And I want us to build a church, our elders want us to build a church, I think you want to build a church that really is unstoppable. And here's what Jesus said about what we're trying to do, what I believe we're trying to do. Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, Jesus said. And those words are kind of ringing in my ears as we launch this new ministry year. I thought it'd be really good for us to spend the next three messages getting our attention on what is most critical for us to be focused on as a church. What do we need to know about being the church so that nothing's going to stop us? We want Jesus to build his church. We want Jesus to build this church. Amen. Okay, you see, in my notes, I actually said that's a good spot for an amen, but that didn't work out the way I imagined it. <laughs> so we want Jesus to build his church. We want Jesus to build this church. Amen. See, that's the way I heard it in my head. 
And so we're going to get a start on that today by looking at one of the defining characteristics of the church that Jesus is building, a church that is unstoppable. But before we get to that, I want to tell you that in 2001, now 15, 15 years ago, Cheryl and I got the call. There was a small group of people here in Barrie that wanted to have a Harvest Bible Chapel. And Cheryl and I went off to Chicago to do some training, five uh, months of training in Chicago. And at the time, we were preparing to plant what was then just the fourth Harvest Bible Chapel. There was the original church, 1988, uh, planted in Chicago. Then there was a church plant in 2000, 12 years later in Naperville. A year later, uh, two churches would be planted, one in Crystal Lake, Illinois, and then us. We were harvest number four. And by God's grace, uh, all of these years later now, um, more than 140 churches in 17 countries. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. So back when it was just harvest number four, Cheryl and I went to Chicago for five months to do this residency to prepare to plant. And we found out on the very first weekend, but I guess you kind of realize it after a few weekends, we started going to the worship services and every single service ended with the exact three same words. What are those three words? And we were so struck by that, that every service ended in the same way. You are loved, that we came here and we planted this church with the folks that were here who had it on their heart to do the same thing. And we ended every worship service in the last 15 years with the same three words. Help me out again. They are, you are loved. Exactly. So I thought, how prevalent is this? I had it in my mind that most of our Harvest Bible chapels, in fact, do this. So I did a little survey this week in, uh, with some of my uh, lead pastor friends, and I put it out in front of them. 42 respondents to the question, you are loved is likely the most common way to close worship in our fellowship. Do you use it? A, always. B, never. Or C, sometimes. And the survey results are 5% said sometimes. 7% said never, and a full 88% of them said, we always close our service with you, our loved. And that's because we've come to the realization that we need to hear it that often or more often, that people need to know they're loved. And so it's so important for us as we launch into this ministry, ministry year and try to lock down what's super important for us as a church, that we start with the ending, those last three words, and discover a truly biblical understanding of what it means when we say, you are love, that powerful little benediction that we say. So let's get started. When you hear the words, you are loved, Listen, you must believe that God loves you unconditionally. God loves you unconditionally. Now, we know the very familiar John 3, 16. Before I get to that, a lot of scripture in this message. This is not one passage, verse by verse through it, which is really our stock and trade. This is, uh, I'm going to throw a lot at you uh, in uh, the course of this message. John 3, 16, that's where we're going to start. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
God's personal and deeply felt sacrifice of his son, the father's giving of the son, communicates his love. He was willing to give up his much-loved son to communicate his abiding love to sinful, rebellious human beings. How many sinful, rebellious human beings in the crowd today? All right. Those of you who did not raise your hand are particularly sinful and rebellious, (laughs) particularly so. You know, Paul wrote this in Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2, 20, a life verse of mine, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone is willing to die, lay down his life for his friends. I mean, the overwhelming thrust of Scripture is the communication of God's love toward us. And the Apostle John includes this essential element lest we believe in any way that we have initiated our own relationship with God, that somehow we came to this ourselves, that we are the ones who moved toward him and affected our own salvation. 1 John 4.10, to understand God's love, you have to understand that it all comes from him. John wrote in This is Love, Not that we have loved God, we haven't, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, the substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ substituted his life for ours, that he atoned or covered our sin with his own blood and with his own righteousness so that we could be the sons and daughters of the king. God initiated, God moved toward us. He first loved us while we were still in our sin. And that's so important because what we're talking about here is not just any kind of love, unconditional love. Unconditional love. That's what God is showing us. And now it's, thinking about that is just awesome in every way. It's awesome in every way that he loves us like that. And to see the full extent of his love, I got to thinking about this. He shows it first, of course, in the sacrifice of his son and providing a way of salvation. But he shows it subsequently in so many other ways. Wouldn't you agree that God shows his love in so many ways? Not the least of which, by the way, is the fact that we're holding the word of God in our hands, that he wrote this letter to us, this love letter to us to tell us uh, wisdom that we need to uh, provide direction for our lives, to give us the word, words of life themselves. We need this word. We need the promises that are contained in it. The promises that he's made also communicate his love, every one of which he's going to fulfill. He shows his love and the comfort and strength that he offers in the midst of pain and sorrow and suffering and loss. He shows his love in establishing the church and giving us one another. 
So often the Holy Spirit works through us to care for one another. This is a gift from God, a love gift from God that we should be the church. And having said that, he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, his very presence amongst us. He loves us. And then we have this assurance that he's returning for us. And a day is coming when so much is wrong right now, but a day is coming when he's going to set all things right. Because he loves us. Every one of those things communicating his love, his unconditional love for his children. Now the fact that he loves you and I this way makes it possible for you to actually love him in return. Look at this quote from Wayne Grudem, theologian. He says this, we imitate this attribute of God, this attribute of love now. We imitate this attribute of God first by loving God in return and second by loving others in imitation of the way that God loves them. Now I want to look at the first part of that to start by loving God in return. Now remember, we've already said, just said it a few minutes ago, God is the originator of our love for him as well as our love for others. Check out this verse. This is pretty important in understanding this. Uh, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love, our capacity to love is there because he first loved us. Now you might ask the question, well is that love for God or is that love for people? Is it a vertical kind of love, our capacity to love him back? Or is it our horizontal kind of love that we can love one another because he first loved us? And in fact, it's both of those things. And when you go and do a study of 1 John 4 on your own, you're gonna see that that verse, we love because he first loved us, all the verses before it, refer to a vertical love relationship with God, the back and forth of he loves us and we're supposed to be expressing our love to him and so we love God because he first loved us. But then all the verses after verse 19 are all about the horizontal, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and, and expressing a care and concern for one another and how that's even a proof of God's love in our lives. And so... Really, it's both of those things. We love God because he first loved us. We love others because he first loved us. All of our capacity to love is derived from God himself. So how, how do we show love for God? Is that an important question to answer? How can we show him our love? Well, let's look at a couple more verses in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 15, John writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We love God by not loving the world. Now the world here, this is a stand-in word for the sinful ways of the earthly kingdom. That's what that is. In contrast to the heavenly kingdom of God. And he's talking about anything that's really antithetical to what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. So for example, if I'm not going to love the world, then I, I'm not going to love money. 
Money's, money itself is not a bad thing, but the love of money is a problem. And if your life is all about earning, and I just want more, and the gathering of possessions, and I'm accumulating things for myself, and I'm, I'm just interested in being very financially secure, if that's your thing, and it's a distraction, and that's what you're all about, and you're thinking about it all the time, hard check time, you may love money more than you love God. Or how about... Or how about sex? Maybe you love sex more than you love God. Now, sex was God's idea. I thought I'd get one amen for that. <laughs> sex was God's idea, and it's a great thing. Amen. Okay, thank you. Thank you. See, you're learning. I love it. But listen, it's a good thing when it's inside the parameters of what God designed it for. But if you love sex so much that you're walking outside of those boundaries then you love it more than you love God. Or, or maybe it's, it's power, influence, position, status, making a name for yourself. You like the fact that people notice you and that your life isn't really about pointing toward the Lord and all that he's done for you. And if that's the case, then you love fame and position more than you love the Lord, all of these things are antithetical to being a Christ follower. It's your pride that's standing in the way of loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength as you ought to. And so on the one side, if we're going to love God, how do we do that? Well, it means not loving the world, but then it means on the more positive side of things, 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We immediately run, we hear the word commandments, we immediately run to rules. God is a rule list. I got to keep the rules. But the commandments of God, it says right here, they're not a burden. In fact, it's, it's kind of counter to the way we think, but the commandments of God are actually liberating. Because when, when God puts a line around something and says, don't do that thing, what he's really saying is I'm trying to protect you from all of the hurt and all of the pain that goes with that. So stay here inside this and you'll find freedom and relief and comfort for your soul, it turns out to be pretty amazing when we follow the commandments of God. It provides us, in fact, with identity. People are all over here trying to find their identity in these other things. They're trying to find it in, in money. They're trying to find it in sex. They're trying to find it in power. God says, you're my son and daughter. I, I know exactly who you are. I just need you to believe it. And, and, and purpose, I'm trying to find my purpose in life. It must be to make money. It must be to make a name for myself. This is my purpose in life. God says, no, I've already defined your purpose. You're here to glorify me. You're here to fulfill the great commission. And, and, and we go over here and we're trying to find love. Maybe if I can find these things, I'll feel loved. And God says, listen to me, I love you. Jesus loves you. It's enough. So inside the commandments of God, these non-burdensome precepts of God's word, we find everything we need, identity, purpose, love. And so 
flowing out from that comes all of these wonderful things like worship. We just want to worship. We want to be here, to be with God's people and worship Him. We, we want to serve, not coerced to serve. We want to. We, we, we want to give, not out of compulsion, but because we just love God and we want to give as much as we possibly can. We want to devote our lives to Him in every way possible as an expression of our love to Him. But there's a caution attached to everything I just said about how we communicate our love to God, and it is this. That it is not in our activity or our busyness or our works that we prove our love for God. That's not the way we authenticate our salvation. Those things are, are, are they're all important. They're all important expressions of love. But the outward, would you agree with me that the outward can be so deceptive? The outward can be so deceptive. But it's the inner character of the Christ follower that indicates true conversion, that indicates that you really love God. Your service is not the primary way you express that, but the secondary way. It all has to flow and start from your heart. You're motivated by what comes from deep within, what God himself put inside of you. He's the one who makes it possible for you to love him in return. And then as a result, notice this next, to love others, to love others. Back to the, the Grudem quote for a second. We, he said this, we imitate this attribute of God First, by loving God in return, we just looked at that, and second, by loving others in imitation, in imitation of the way that God loves them. In other words, I'm not going to make up how I love for others on my own. I'm not going to invent that. I'm just going to imitate the way that God loves them, and we'll look at that in a second. And Grudem here, he's reflecting, of course, on the great commandment. Matthew 22, 37 to 38, this lawyer, religious lawyer, comes to Jesus, asks the question, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus quotes from the Old Testament law to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. I took that away. Loving God, loving others, great commandment, that's kind of the guiding principle of how we're going to do the mission that he's entrusted to us. Love is, love is what compels the mission of the church. And it is our mission at Harvest, we say it this way, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. The great commission is to make disciples plant churches for them to be a part of. That's the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples. That comes to us with the force of a command. And so as we make disciples and we plant churches, we understand it comes with the force of a command. The command is make disciples. But we don't want to be compelled by the command, but we want to be compelled in the same way that God is compelled to do it, by love. In other words, we want to go make disciples because we love the people that aren't disciples yet. We just love them. And we want to do it. We're not doing it just because we're commanded to do it. 
It's because we have a love for people in the same way that Jesus had a love for people. And it's our desire to have them know him because it was Jesus' desire to have them know him. That's the great commission. That's doing it in the spirit of the great commandment. And so who exactly are we to love? I've broken it down here into three categories. Ready for these? All right, here's the first one, your fellow believers. Fairly obvious. So a number of verses out of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So who's this about loving? This is about loving one another, one another, right here, okay? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. On a scale of one to 10, where 10 is really clear. How clear is that? That's a 10, that's a 10. Beloved, if, but John wants to make sure we got it. So he just goes on and on and on. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I make any sense. And as if we haven't gotten it yet, John says it one more time, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, pretty clear that there's simply no room for a church or a follower of Christ who claims Christ who doesn't love the people around him in the church. So here's, here's how we're going about that here. Not perfectly, but going after it. Um, it's really our heart to create what we call uncommon community here at Harvest. Uncommon in the sense that the love between brothers and sisters in Christ should be so remarkable that, that, that we would look at it and go, this isn't very common. This is very uncommon what we have. This is unusual when we compare it to anyone else's love for one another. We're trying to create that uncommon community right here in our church. And, and primarily, we would say that Pastor Dwayne and Pastor Roger are kind of the ones kind of guiding that and working that out in our church. Pastor Dwayne, as he oversees both our integration ministries and our welcoming ministries and our small group ministries, and Pastor Roger, as he oversees our biblical soul care ministries, and those two things kind of really fold together and are integrated together. But we're trying to cultivate this this, this um this sense in our church that we are living out the one another's with one another, starting with love one another. And that's a work in progress for sure, and I want to commend you because I think this is, in many respects, a very loving church. We have a ways to go yet, but I know this from our history. There was a time when I look back now, and I would just say there was a time when we were not a very loving church. And God took us through the fire to where we are today. And we're in a very different place. And those who have been here the entirety of these 15 years, who have traveled the entire way with us, know what it was like then 
know what it is like now and thank God for where we're at. But as Paul said to the Thessalonians, it's, I want you to do this and I know that you're doing it. I just want you to do it more and more. I want us to grow in this sense of uncommon community that we would continue to love one another. And here's what's at stake. Ready for this? Speaking to his followers, Jesus said this in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? What's one word we could use to describe the kind of love that Jesus had for us? Sacrificial is a great word. Sacrificial. He gave it all. He gave his all. He put us before himself. That's the kind of love. So Jesus says this. Just as I have loved you sacrificially, you also are to love one another sacrificially. And then he says this. This is the kicker in the verse. Ready? This is the implication of all of this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This is the defining characteristic of the church. This is the thing that when we have it, the effectiveness of our evangelism is set. Our ability to attract other people to the church, to hear the message of Jesus Christ and be drawn to him, it hinges on this, that we love one another. See, if the unsaved, someone who isn't a follower of Christ, come in here, they're invited by you and they come to a service and they see a behavior that is unloving, if they see conduct that is unbecoming of a follower of Christ, if that's the case, they will reject us, they will reject the church, they will reject the message, they will reject Jesus, because it won't make any sense to them to speak of a loving God, but be amongst the people who don't love each other. But, but if we get this right, if we continue to build this uncommon community of people who love one another, then when those who are not believers come, they will see something so remarkable, they will know that we are believers and they will be drawn and attracted to the gospel and we will see more and more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that, church? Amen. Amen. It's all based on the Jesus style unconditional love that we have for one another. And we want more and more of that. Well, loving fellow believers, how about this? It's also been made possible for us to love those who live on the margins of society. Now, this really gets at the heart of God's kind of love, this unconditional love, because those on the margins cannot repay you for your love. They have no capacity to do that. And sometimes our love confession time, I think I'm totally guilty of this. Sometimes our kind of love for one another here in the church can still be kind of a conditional love. So I was, I was thinking about this scenario. You know, it's, it's, it's conditional in the sense that, sure, I'll come and help you move. Could we confess right now that, that asking someone to help you move is the worst thing you could ever ask them to do? It's the worst thing. It's, uh, second place is, is, could you drive me to the airport? That's number two. So, I'll come and help you move. As a follower of Christ, it's unconditional love. Yes, I'll come, but I'm tucking that back here that I helped you move. I'm gonna remember that 
And then when I have a need, when I'm moving or doing anything, it really doesn't matter. I'm calling you up. Because in some senses, I'm, I'm still kind of keeping an account. I'm, I'm remembering that I helped you and that you're going to help me someday. But that's not the way this needs to work. That's not the way it needs to work with us. We should be helping one another, but never expecting it, and never keeping track of any of it. And, and the thing is that that can happen here amongst us, but with those in the margins, that can never happen, and that's why I believe the unconditional love is just kind of easier to see and to do, because they're never going to help you move. They're never going to drive you to the airport. People on the margins, the vulnerable, never have the capacity to reciprocate. And so that whole part of the equation where we're keeping track and expecting it to come back on us, that's never coming back. That part of the equation is eliminated. And the unconditional love is clearer. In Harvest, we have to lead in this. We have to lead on this care for those in the margins. Thursday night, we had a prayer night over at 7 George Street, and uh, most of you will know this, some of you may not, that we've purchased this building on 7 George Street. We take possession December 1st. We're going to be in, uh, Lord willing, in less than a year from now, we'll be worshiping at that site. We were there for prayer meeting on Thursday night, and uh, those of you who know where it is, it's right in the heart of the city, kind of in a commercial industrial kind of area, and when we were there, we were shooting some video footage outside before the prayer meeting, and a, a couple of I see this every time I'm there. A couple of a gentlemen who are homeless were sitting in the back part of the parking lot when they saw um, the guy I was with and they saw him bring out his drone. One of them came right over and wanted to talk about the drone. This fact that there are homeless people on this site all the time is a game changer for us. In fact, if you walk out onto Army Navy Air Force Drive, the extension of Vespra, and you walk down toward the end of the street, and you walk about 100 or 200 meters into the field and into the woods, there's a creek back there, and there's a tent city back there of homeless people within steps of our new church. Now, that very much is a game changer for us. This is going to compel something from us with regard to those who live on the margins of our society. And if it doesn't change us, if it doesn't capture our attention, if we don't respond, then we will, as a church, fail miserably at our new location. And it would have been better for us if we never moved. It has to change us. The words of Jesus really drive this home when he said this in Matthew 25. This is the first passage I thought of. You know, in, in this passage, it's a, it's a scene from the end times. And Jesus, at the judgment, is separating the sheep from the goats. How many people remember this? He's separating the sheep from the goats. The goats are those who, who don't believe, and the sheep are those who do believe, uh, the righteous ones, as Jesus calls them in this passage. And he addresses the sheep. He says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Awesome. He's very happy with his sheep. But they're a little confused. They say, 
The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? I mean, this was what they were all about. There's, a, there's a, an assumption in the text that these sheep were about the business of loving those on the margins. But they had no recollection that they were actually doing it for Jesus. They were just doing it. And Jesus said to them, the king, Jesus, will answer them and say, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, as you did it to those on the margins, the weak and the vulnerable, you did it to me. You did it to Jesus. And so the conclusion of this passage is, Loving and serving those on the margins is SOP. Standard operating procedure. That the followers of Jesus Christ just do this, and when they're doing it, they're not even thinking about it being for Jesus. They're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's so close to the heart of God. What you're doing to love on those on the margins is so close to the heart of God. And we need to ramp this up. We started this 5,000 hours initiative last Thanksgiving about 11 months ago. We had hoped to reach 5,000 hours. Honestly, that was just a number we grabbed. We had no idea if we had the ability to reach that number. And in actual fact, we've, we've crested 2,000 hours uh, a few weeks ago. I doubt we're gonna make 5,000 by Thanksgiving. I feel like some of you are serving but not kind of logging your numbers as an encouragement to others. But we haven't quite made 5,000, but maybe we could reach 5,000 before uh, next year. Just that we would continue to be thinking about it, continuing to see how our engagement is demonstrating our love for those on the margins. They're the only ones on the margins, though, not just the weak and vulnerable outside the church. How about, how about children? You ever, you ever think about children being on the margins? You ever think about it? They, they can't vote. We don't let them drive. They can't hold their own property. They're vulnerable, they're weak, they're overlooked. Sometimes they're neglected and too often abused. And when his own disciples tried to prevent some children from getting close to Jesus because they just felt like he was too busy to spend his time with those who were a bit on the margins in their minds. They didn't want these children bothering Jesus. Jesus called the children to himself saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Working in Harvest Kids and Awana is working with those on the margins. It's, it's not the kind of work, by the way, that's very flashy. It's not, it's not worship team on stage. It's not, it's not being a pastor and getting hands laid on you in a very public and affirming kind of way. We don't bring our Harvest Kids workers up here and lay hands on them and commission them in the same fashion. It's it's a bit of a thankless job. I even think that happens kind of everywhere. You're just kind of laboring away, working with kids. Saturday church uh, last night. It's, a, it's really a small number of kids, and sometimes our workers will, 
will come and, and the numbers fluctuate a little bit at Saturday church and so sometimes the workers will come and there'll only be a handful of kids there. And all the effort that went in to teach maybe 20 or 30 kids on a Sunday morning will result in maybe teaching three, four, or five kids on a Saturday night. And it's pretty thankless in some ways. They're not in the spotlight. But according to Jesus, according to Jesus, it may be that the most important work that's happening right now in this building is happening down that hallway and not here in the big room. That the thing that's closest to his heart is happening in Harvest Kids. It's happening at a one on Wednesday nights. It's not happening here in the weekend services. Because Jesus loves the children. And you know, we need more loving people to step up to love on those children. This is the part where I insert a gratuitous public service announcement about the need for those to step up and love children. Especially a need at Saturday church. But this is at the heart of what God wants us to be and do as the followers of Christ. All right, God has made it possible to love fellow believers, to love those on the margins, and then this last one that I don't like very much, but it's in the Bible, so I have to preach it. Uh, and even your enemies. You have to love even your enemies. And he puts it in us to be able to do that. And this is where it gets real because we can really, I can get my head around loving you guys. I can, get, I can understand that. I can very much get my head around loving the weak and the vulnerable and those on the margins. That's not hard to figure out. But loving my enemies? Seriously? Luke 6, Jesus, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I have had people hate me. And the last thing I wanted to do was anything good for them. Am I the only person in the room? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. From my human heart, I want to write beside this passage, ridiculous. But this is the radical call of Jesus-style unconditional love. It's the only thing that makes sense. Because that's how God loved us. Because we were the enemy. He did good for us. And if we want to love people the way Jesus loved people... We don't need to look any further than the way he loved us when we were the enemies of God. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. 
You want to be better than that. We're the church of Jesus Christ. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That was us. And that's really what Grudem said in his quote. This is loving others in imitation of the way God loves them. And so that's it. That's, that's it. When you, hear, when you hear the words, you are loved, you must believe that God loves you unconditionally, which makes it possible for you to love him in return and as a result to love your fellow believers, to love those on the margins, and even to love your enemies. Now, I don't want you to miss where we started. We started by hearing that all of this is initiated by God himself. It all hinges on God's unconditional love for you. Just stop for a minute. Just stop, just stop putting your stuff away. Please just listen. I'm going to say those three words in a few moments after a song. I'm going to say those three words again. And I need you to hear it as coming from God, from Him to you. We need to understand it all starts with Him. It all ends with Him. Some of you need to know today in particular, but all of us need to hear it all the time. We can't go without it. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.